Over a 30-year career, she's appeared on and off Broadway and across the country in countless shows, appearing in both the original production and the revival of 42nd Street, Young Frankenstein, the new musicals Dancing in the Dark and Minsky's on the West Coast, and her award-winning turn as the Drowsy Chaperone. She's currently on Broadway as, I guess, the titular mama <laughs> in Mamma Mia. <laughs> Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm really pleased to welcome Beth Level. Oh, hey, uh, Beth. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. So, Mamma Mia, as you said, do, we're going to talk, and then you're off to Greece. I'm uh, off to the show in Greece today. <laughs> I'm, I'm tanned and ready to go. Obviously, we all know Mamma Mia has been a hit around the world. Going into the leading role of Donna Sheridan, mm-hmm. how much freedom do you have in that part to do what you want with it? And how much is it about hitting marks that a lot of other people have hit before? Um, you know what I loved about the Mamma Mia process is that when we had an extended rehearsal time, about four or five weeks, which is kind of unheard of. Wow, That's a yeah, you, we usually hear 10 days in a rehearsal room by yourself. Go, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, we had four or five weeks, and there were 12 of us that went in. Uh, technically, 13 of us went in at the same time. So we had the luxury of personalizing and almost creating the show. I mean, the, the show is what it is. We, you need to do what the author needs us to do. But personalizing it to Beth, restaging Reblocking, Beth. What do you think about this? What can you bring to that? What um, What's your take on that? Do you want to go stage left, stage right? She, the director, um, the, res- uh, the resident director, Martha, allowed me all this freedom for me to find my Donna through Beth hmm. and the other characters and the other moms and the other dads, and it was so much fun. And for five weeks, four or five weeks, it was like putting up a new show when we went in. Our big put-in and everything was like, it was really, really, really a privilege to do it that way. Well, when you say 11 or 12 people, I mean, was it really yeah. most of the principal yeah, performers the principal. were all new at once? All the dads, um, myself and Allison Briner, uh, the, a Sophie, a Sky, and one, two, three, four ensemble members. Huh. So it was. There was a lot for the company to wrap their head around. It was all these new people and their new energies and what we were bringing to the show, and it was exciting. That opening night, it really felt like an opening night for everyone. Judy Kramer was there, the producer, mm-hmm. who I had the privilege of meeting. And I have to tell you, during my, we had two put-ins. Which, if you don't know what a put-in is, it's literally a rehearsal. You're in full costume, mics, and everything. Usually, just by yourself in the costume, so you feel extra special. And I finished doing Money, Money, my first song, and over the loud speaker, we hear a company, hold, hold, please. I was like, oh, gosh, I've already really screwed it up. They're having to have me just it. I'm fired already. And I hear the PSM, Andy, go, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. And down the aisle walks Benny and Bjorn. Oh. Hello. <laughs> and my, I felt my jaw go down to my stomach, and the whole company just stood there kind of looking at them in awe. They were in town doing their... Uh, oh, Christina Christine. from Duvamala, mm-hmm. yeah. And they took the time to, c- to come over and to take a listen and to say how wonderful things were and to say hello and introduce themselves. <laughs> but literally stop, stop a run-through right. of the show. That's okay. I I was, we had that. just started, so it was great, and it was our opportunity to meet them. It was so spectacular. Huh. Yeah, and, and then we continued. And then did you see them after? Nope, they had to go. They were on their <laughs> lunch break. They, so they had literally, they ran over from Carnegie Hall to say hello and pat us on the back and say thank you and welcome. 
Hmm. And then they left. It was really cool. Now, when you say I had that much time, mm-hmm. did you? I mean, did you even go through the classic table read where you sat mm-hmm. around and went through? So it I really was, was like starting I was from really scratch. Really surprised. One hmm. of my first days of rehearsal, I walked in with my recorder ready to study music, and I sat at the table with Martha, and we looked at books on Greece. We looked at paintings. We talked about relationships. We talked about mother-daughter relationships, women-friends relationships, what happened, what we think Donna's past life was like, where she was born, her mother. We, it was like class. Wow. So I went to Mamma Mia class hmm. for a week and a half. That's unheard of. But was it that you created a, a new backstory for her, or was no. it that, that you, were, you learned the backstory? I learned the backstory, and if there was something that I thought was interesting that would come through Beth, then that was my backstory. That was my truth. That was who my Donna was. That was her history. That was her mother. Like, I think my Donna, quote-unquote, is... is from a different place than maybe some of the other Donnas were. We decided that. Because hmm. there's a line about, oh, you sound just like your mother, so I've chosen where my mother was and what she sounds like. Hmm. <laughs> that was really fun. It was really fun. And then I, I tried so hard to convince them, let's just all go to Greece for research, but I, that didn't work out. That wasn't in the budget. <laughs> yeah, no. You're like me, of mm. an age where we heard these songs on the radio mm-hmm. constantly. Did you know all the music going in, or was, was a lot of it, did you have to be refreshed, or did you, in fact, not really know the songs? Half and half. I know the big ones. I know Winner Takes It All. I knew uh, Money, Money, Money. But there's some of them I had never heard of in my life. My hmm. mother had, and she uh, refreshed my memory, silly me. Uh, never By performing heard, them yes, for you? Yes, thank you. I wish it, <laughs> she talked about Well, she has ABBA albums, so she, uh, she was a huge ABBA fan. So literally there was a reference in the script to something, Fernando, and I couldn't. I knew I'd heard it. I just couldn't think of the bridge. And so I called her from rehearsal. I went, sing me the bridge, Fernando, quick. She sang it for me. So I, I hum it now going across the stage before I drill. So that's my little homage to my mom. But I didn't know, I didn't know slipping, through, uh, slipping Through My Fingers. I didn't know that song. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was a, there was a lot of them I didn't know. I, didn't, I don't know. So, uh, last summer, I didn't know that song. So that was nice. It was like learning new music. Hmm. I had seen the show only once before, and I had seen it in London. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember about it was as the song cue sort of came up, Ooh. there were the people in the audience who suddenly said, oh, it's going to be this. And they kind of reacted yeah. in anticipation. And then there were the other people that when the song actually started, they went, oh, I know this. Do you feel that? Absolutely. The- There's... Certain nights, it's very interesting doing Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, eight shows a week, you have eight completely different audiences usually. Some audiences are there, they've seen the show 16 times, and a, sh- a song starts that they know like, Mamma Mia, here I go again, and they start applauding, they start clapping on the beat, and they are ready to be up there with you and perform. Some of the audiences just listen and they just want to enjoy the music some of them just can't contain themselves and i think they would really rather just stand up and sing with you as opposed to just listen but some nights they are ready to to fully participate in your with you as you're singing these songs 
I've never been in a show like that. That's so much fun. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's fairly my job unique. Well, does it, yeah. does it or is it distracting? I mean, when you suddenly have people bobbing in their seats and, um, and, and in fact, you know, mouthing or depending on who you're sitting next to, absolutely. actually singing the words. It's distracting along. if they get off the beat. <laughs> Or if they start rushing a song, there's Super Trooper where the three of us start and we go, Super Trooper, they start clapping, then they start, and you see the, and the conductors and the monitor going, keep with me, don't rush, don't rush. But it's just so much fun when an audience has permission to play like that with you. And so even if it's sometimes distracting when they clap, it's, that quickly disappears by, you know, by the joy that they give you by doing that. Hmm. It's uh, it's fun. It's a relationship with them that that I have at Mamma Mia. That's I don't not sure happens uh, frequently. Well, again, I think there's an instant connection with the music because yes. so many people come knowing the mm, music, and loving and, it, and that's that's certainly a part of it. So yeah. there's an immediate familiarity, and as you say, there's probably some portion of the audience every night who've seen it before and yeah. love it, and then there's the movie, and then there's the movie. So then there's the movie, which I have not seen. So you've not you've not stolen anything from Meryl Streep? I have not. I probably should have, but I did not. I did not. <laughs> but so I think I think the um some people come to see the show because they're such big fans of the movie. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's a musical. Whoa. Well that's it. There must be a whole new wave. I mean I guess the movie was not this past summer, but the summer before. Right. So at, at this point now, you know, it's out on D V D and hit. you can you can see it. I was picking up my car the other night at the garage. And because I don't wear a wig, I am recognizable after the show. People know who I am when I come out. So I was at the garage, and it was just slightly awkward because I saw a family waiting for their car, and there was quite a lot of them. They were looking at me, and I didn't, I didn't want to go, Hi, yes, you just saw me. Yes. <laughs> don't you want an autograph? <laughs> don't you want to come over here? So I didn't. I just kind of stood there and was waiting for them if they wanted me to say hello they get in their car, they have a van, and they have one of those DVD players in the van, crank up the Mamma Mia movie in the CD, oh, and they all start singing it out their windows. They're leaving. And they go, you were great. They waved to you. And they waved to me. It's like, thank you, with their little uh, souvenir programs. Oh. But, but you know, what an age we're in that people leave a play and get in their car right. and put on the movie. Hello. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of fascinating. Absolutely. The other fascinating thing, and, and I always marvel at this when I go back and see a long-running show, is how many members of the audience are not necessarily English-speaking Correct. or as their first language. Correct. Do you, do you have a sense at times that some of the dialogue is sailing over their heads yes. and they're just there for the songs? Yes. <laughs> Yes, and not not that they're not disinterested in the scenes, but I'm not sure they fully understand it, but it doesn't matter because the song's coming up soon and the story is, I, I think they know the story well enough that they can still be involved in our storytelling and loving it. Hmm. So it doesn't really matter. I think it uh, transcends languages. I was doing a picture of sometimes, you know, we just finished the huge Broadway Cares fundraising and uh, I was taking pictures in the lobby. After the show, and I literally met a couple from Romania, Brazil, Portugal, London, South Carolina. Not that that's a foreign country, says the girl from North Carolina. It it just went on and on and on and on. I was fascinated. And they, you know, spoke better English than I spoke Romanian and just had the best time. They had the best time. I think that's the magic 
some magic ingredient about Mamma Mia. It does transcend, and it speaks to everyone, no matter what language. Hmm. You're, going, you're going to experience the joy and the fun of that show. And if you feel like it, get up and come on dance down the aisles. What's the, uh, what's the stage door scene like for Mamma Mia these days? It's a zoo. It's a lovely zoo. And a lot of kids with their moms uh, wanting to just say hello and wanting you to sign their program and telling you how much, what a good time they had. And they asked me, oh, I hope you're having as much fun as you, as you look like you're having. Hmm. Like Do you, is, is it fundamentally different than, than you, the stage door scene at other shows you've done, do you think? Sometimes. I think because the show is, particularly the end, the mega mix at the end, leaves an audience just jumping up and down with energy. So they bring that energy to the stage door, and they want to share that with you. Hmm. S- some shows, um, you don't get quite that many people or quite that energetic a response, or it's just a little more low-key. Hmm. Well, you made the comment that since hmm. you wear your own hair in the show, yes. is there a, is it a case of on this show you come out and you are more recognized than Maybe. on other shows? I've never thought, but I walk right out and hi, that's Donna. She was just on stage. I just watched her in green spandex singing Waterloo. I know her. Huh. Say hello to me. Let's have a conversation. So, so there it goes. So there you go. And then they scream. Sometimes they scream down the street if I've actually missed them. Oh, Donna! I'm like, oh hi. <laughs> That's something new to me, to be that recognizable in a role. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Because I didn't look anything like I looked like a drowsy chaperone. I could leave. No one had any idea who I was. And thankfully, the same can be said about young Frankenstein. (laughs) 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 So tell me how uh, a girl from North Carolina Hmm. finds her way to fame and fortune on the Great White Way. Um, When did you start performing? Um, Well, she's a very lucky girl, for one thing. I was very late. I look at these kids in Mamma Mia, and they're young, and they've known what they wanted to do since they were in, you know, dance class at three. I didn't get the bug until my senior year in high school. I hadn't done anything, anything. And I did Brigadoon my senior year in high school, and it, it, it was the biggest light bulb ever, the satisfaction. Did you get a role or a course? I did. I was oh. a role. I was Bonnie Jean. Okay. Um, and first time out. First time. That'll that'll help. That was pretty good. And I fell in love with the community and this storytelling that a musical gives you permission to do. But that was kind of it. You know, I, I'm sure all of us that have done our high school musical and they think it's the most brilliant thing ever in the world. We just knew we were going to tour. We were going to tour. We all wouldn't have. We could skip school, but that didn't happen. So, and aren't you glad there actually weren't home video cameras back then? Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> lives in memory. I see enough of them like now. It's like oh, that's one I can't stand to watch myself, which is really sad. But after that high school uh, musical, I went and did some community theater at, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then I have a degree in social work counseling, which has actually come in really handy. But I had I just didn't know I could have a career doing what I really where my passion was. Hmm. So were you doing shows I mean what well, you're studying social work, but were you doing shows in college? I was doing shows in college. But there was no theater major, there was a theater minor. Mm-hmm. So I did applause. They did one musical a year and I did Blythe Spirit and I did um, some Ionesco play. Just I, I did everything I could possibly audition for. I was First in line to audition. And I had a remarkable, remarkable teacher who was became a mentor to me. And I give her a lot of credit for just believing in me so much and kind of pushing me towards maybe seeing and exploring 
what my life could be with actually being an actor. Was this a, a teacher in the theater mm-hmm. program? Oh, mm-hmm. okay. She was the head of the theater. Mm-hmm. Her name is Linda Bamford. I'm still grateful to her. And she helped me. She and another teacher, Nancy Truesdale, helped me get applications for grad school hmm. because they thought maybe I should just explore it, see see what it was like, which was terrifying. And I was much too terrified to move to New York. I was much too much of a southern chicken. <laughs> the biggest city scared me. So I knew I had to do something else, grow up a little bit more. So, But I didn't want to go far, mm-hmm. God forbid. So I applied to only one school, and that was the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And I got in, and I learned more in those two years. I'm so I'm, boy, I was an eager student. Hmm. I learned so much from my peers and from my teachers, and just by doing, by doing and making mistakes and being successful and failing and, and being successful. What kind of shows were you doing in grad school? Um, I was Dolly, and Hello Dolly. That was my thesis. How do you do, just performing? It was your yep. thesis. Yeah, I had to research it. I had to do a whole. I remember hiring someone. This is going to date me to type my thesis because I was such a crappy typer. Um, and you know, you, you you explored the matchmaker. You did. You stretched it out. You did whatever you could to make a book, a thesis out of exploring Dolly Levi. Hmm. Wish I could remember it. I think I went back and read it not too long ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're there. kidding! Oh boy. I did some Neil Simon. I did uh, Fraulein Schneider in Cabaret. I did Gypsy in Gypsy. Hmm. And I, I played read, Mama Rose, not I Gypsy. S- I played Mama oh. Rose. I read Boy. somewhere along the way that you also choreographed the I production did. of No No Nanette. I did. That's right. See, you remember better than I do. I choreographed No No Nanette. I choreographed Applause. That I started choreographing at the Dinner Theater in Raleigh. Huh. Huh. But Girl Gotta Eat. Was I mean... Was there any dance training? I mean, at school, I assume there was, well, was some. But, there but was going some. right into, I mean, granted, you're in college or, or was grad school was the choreography? Uh, no, or and undergrad. college. Yeah. Yeah. And in the summer jobs in between, there was one or two. So, I took five, uh, about five years of tap from second grade until sixth ah. grade. Thank God. Hmm. And then I stopped, which I really wish I hadn't. But it, I just wasn't cool or something anymore. Huh. So, so, in fact, when you say you only discovered theater in your senior year of mm-hmm, high school, mm-hmm. you may have been sent to tap lessons. I was sent to tap lessons. You were you were made to do it. It wasn't. I have pictures said, of recitals. <laughs> wearing too much makeup. Yes. We will look for those on your Facebook oh, page. It's awesome. Um, so I'm I did have some tap basics somewhere in my DNA code that mm-hmm. I once it was um, no no Nanette where I had to kind of go revisit tap school. Yeah. Since there was no one else, that teacher Linda was saying, "I think you'd be perfect to choreograph this. You have a real, you have a real musical sense." I was like, oh, "Okay," so I'm sure it was just dreadful, but <laughs> sure it was dreadful. But I did it. I did it. So you didn't want to go too far from home, no. even for grad school. No. So what'd you do when you got out of grad school? I went and did uh, a summer of dinner theater, which I think is a real lesson for every actor to experience how to concentrate. I did a wonderful show, though. I did I Do, I Do. Mm-hmm. And then there's this huge theater audition process called uh, SETC. One is SETC Southeastern Theater Conference. One is NETC. And I went there in Nashville, Tennessee. It was really like a cattle call. You got a number. You had, I don't know, I don't even know if it was 16 bars or whether it was eight bars. You kind of sang a note. And you did a little clip of some monologue. And I was asked to become an intern at the Pennsylvania Stage Company and get my equity card. And that was Allentown. That was Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
Allentown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So I went there for about eight months, got my equity card, and moved. Just did it. I moved to New York. Oh. Found an apartment with a pal on in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> when it was still when really it was Hell's hell, Kitchen. When it, when it really was Hell's Kitchen. That was awesome. And then as I was, as I was looking over um, work that you did, um, fairly early on, you did a bunch of shows at the Muni. I did. That was one of my first professional jobs. So I, King and I, Promises, yeah, Promises, yeah. and Can Can. Yes. And guess what I did in King and I? I was like third wife from the left. However, I stood by or covered uh, for Lynn Redgrave, who was Anna. Wow. And I was, I was a, a child. And, of course, I'm sure, can you imagine, the Muni, the roles usually played by Lynn Redgrave will be played by Beth Level. Like, <laughs> what? Did it happen? No, no. <laughs> can you imagine? But one, one night, Lynn, who had just finished doing this um, production in California of Oh, what's the name? Something, something explains it all. Oh, oh Sister Mary Ignatius. Thank you. So one night she got like a gnat stuck down her throat. Oh, was doing? <laughs> and all I could think of was, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to play Anna and the King and I. And I went home. And, of course, I didn't have to. She was a, such a professional. But I went home and I stayed up till 530 trying to memorize all the lines and the music. That was a great night. Wow. Of course, she came through. <sighs> and then I did Can Can. Then I did Promises, Promises. And then I stayed away for about 20 years. Gosh, was it that long? And then I was just at the Muni, 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 this past summer doing Miss Hannigan. Really? In a 106-degree heat wave. <laughs> well, that outdoor, th- I mean, it's interesting you say, you know, dinner theater, outdoor theater at the Muni with gnats going down well, throats yes, and absolutely, heat but there was 12,000 people, too. That's such an experience. It's a great place to work. Hmm. So... Not long after that, though, yeah. you got to make your Broadway debut. And I we were did. talking before we, we started this that, that uh, a lot of people have it wrong when you made your Broadway <laughs> debut. I know. Somebody said it was 1988. It's like, oh, no. It was 84. I'm pretty sure. That I, now I'm going to have to call my mother. But I'm pretty sure it was 84. Right after the Muni, right after uh, King and I Promises, Promises, I had a, a big audition process for Michael Stewart. And the powers that be, Mark Bramble, at 42nd Street to be Anytime Annie in the, the national tour. And my tap skills w- were not what they should be. But Michael Stewart was such a – he believed in me so much that Gower's assistant, Karen Baker, gave me the tap combination of Anytime Annie. And she told me I had uh, three days to learn it. And she said, if you can come back and do this tap combination, tap combination successfully – we think you may have a job. So I was like, oh. So my husband, who was a much better tap dancer than I was at the time, he and I rented one of those rickety, rickety studios above some porn shop on 46th Street. Oh, those were the days. And we worked and worked and worked and worked. And I got the job. And I played Anytime Annie um, for about eight, seven or eight months in the first national tour in Washington, D.C., in Boston, and, and Philadelphia. Hmm. And then the role opened in New York. And I came in, and I believe it was the spring of eighty. Four. It might have been 85. Hmm. But you'd already been doing it, and, and with the way you say just those three cities, so you were really doing some sit-downs. We sat down for four months, hmm. four months, three months, and in Boston. Did I say Boston? It was great. It was a great way to see a city, great way to do a tour. Yeah, it wasn't – if you were doing a week at a time, right. you, barely, you barely have the opportunity. Right. Even though I kind of miss, I never ha- I never did that. Never say never, but I never did one of those one week, bam, 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 bam. Hmm. I think that would be – I'm probably too old now, but <laughs> I'm not sure I'd survive. But uh, what a great way to – 
see the world <laughs> one week at a time. Well, you know, <laughs> three days at a time. Yeah, between that's that matinees sure. and, and after and, people say, you know, you wake up in hotels and have no idea what city you're in or what you're doing. So how long then once you came to New York and, and went into 42nd Street, how long did you, did you stay with it? 42nd Street? Almost yeah. four years. Wow. Yeah. They let me um, come and go occasionally. I did a show in San Francisco. They let me out. And then I came back. And we also, during that time, did this wonderful thing where they took all the principals from the Broadway company, uh, married them to the ensemble of the bus and truck, and we went to Japan. Hmm. We went to Japan. And we performed 42nd Street, and they filmed it for a Japanese kind of HBO thing, which I see little snippets of here and there everywhere. <laughs> Subtitled in Japanese, no doubt. I can't remember. Probably. Probably because we're speaking English. That was an experience. And then we came back, and then I left after that to do um, Greece hmm. with Jack Wagner. I was playing Rizzo. That didn't last very long. <laughs> Where was that? Was that? Well, it went to the Muni, then it went to Dallas, and then they recast it to make it uh, a tour. It was mm-hmm. going to be a tour, hopefully, with aren't they all ending up on Broadway. But that didn't happen. <laughs> so when the Grease tour mm-hmm. wound up, I mean, you'd left um, 42nd Street, and 42nd Street wound up, I think, in 88? about 88, yeah, 89. So. so you didn't, you didn't have, you couldn't go back to them and say you got you know got any openings no i didn't so um what certainly you know in looking over things we didn't see you on broadway again for a couple of years was it a couple of years yeah well it looks to me like oh, uh, it was crazy for you in 92 well there's a what good reason da? i just remember it's like oh what was i doing yeah i had, i gave birth to tj um who turned 20, 20 yesterday hmm. happy birthday tj um, and then uh, then it was crazy for you, hmm. which was a heck of a way to get back in shape. Now, crazy for you, you originated the role of Tess. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. I found that you understudied the role of Polly. I did. The only reason I say I find that interesting is I saw an interview where you uh, – and I hope you were quoted correctly – where you said that even at 10, I was not an ingenue. And understudying Polly, Polly could be referred to as the ingenue role. Correct. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, do you have the experience to ultimately play the ingenue? I don't think so. Would you ever cast me as an ingenue? <laughs> but you were understudying. So. Did you get to go on? Well, yes, I did. You know, it's interesting. With Crazy For You, I auditioned for Polly about eight times. Hmm. So I'm not sure they knew exactly what they wanted that voice to be. Beth Level, not quite the ingenue, and they ended up going with Jody, who was a fantastic ingenue. But I think they liked me so much, it was like, oh, let's just give her something. <laughs> so there was this kind of undeveloped role that was kind of like Anytime Annie. And I think um, I think that was a gift to me, Tess and covering Polly. Mm-hmm. So when I went on, I brought my own take to it, but it was written for, for Jody. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would. Um, I think the show was more successful having an ingenue voice than it would have been with my voice. Mm-hmm. Was that in fact your first opportunity to do a full scale new musical? Yeah, it was. 
So what, gosh, it really was. What was what was that experience? Because again, when you do shows at the Muni, right, when you're you're in, you came into Forty Second Street. You know that first time out being in something where you say, "Well, they liked you, so they wanted to find something I know. for you." Isn't that nice? But but what were the opportunities? Did the role of Tess grow, oh, change? Yeah. How did how did you? It started have out with two input? lines. Wow, something like that. I mean, two or three lines, two little snippets of something, and it kept growing and growing. And then we had you know, pieces of song here. And then there was a love relationship with Bruce Adler, who played Sangler. And then one of the things about original shows, this is, I don't know if this is even urban legend, but it makes a really good story. Because it, it is true, going down to the bus to Washington, D.C., to the National Theater to start our uh, out-of-town tryouts. Mike Ockrent, Ken Lugwig, and Susan Stroman said, oh, and by the way, we have a new act, too. So they completely, we started over again. So I remember the day we got to Washington, ha, uh, the whole structure of the show had changed. Huh. So that was when I was like, what, what? what did, can, you, can you talk a little about it, what the change was? I since- can't remember. I just remember the storytelling, the, how it ended, completely changed. Hmm. But I, I'm sorry, I can't remember specifically. That's okay. What changed, but a lot of things. There was new songs that were introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, it was good good changes because the show was so fantastic. And were those changes continuing while you were out of town? Mm-hmm. They always do. Yeah, they always. And do. then still, yet again, once you got into the city, mm-hmm. a lot changed. A lot hmm. changed. But good for them for having the uh, the eye and the, the the intelligence to know to keep making the story better, to keep making it successful. It's interesting about Crazy for you too. It's one of those shows that even now, coming to Mama Me at the stage door or Young Frankenstein or Drowsy, it's one of those shows that a lot of young actors had just moved to New York, and that show was like, that's the reason I became an actor. That's why I wanted to be a dancer. That's why I started to come to Broadway was seeing Crazy for You. And that, that's, so, that's so amazing. Hmm. That was one of those shows. That was just a big gift to me. Hmm. How long did you stay with it? Um, th- three and a half years. And wow. I, I left Boy, when I you be- get a show, you, you stick with it. You know it. what? I was a breadwinner at the time. And I, I don't leave shows until I have another job. Um, and I became pregnant when I left Crazy for You. I went on maternity leave. But during my ninth month of pregnancy, uh, Stro- Susan Stroman called and said, uh, do you want to do Showboat? I said, well, I'm, I'm nine months pregnant right now, so I can't really do it. She said, well, call me afterwards. So four weeks after I gave birth... I was up in Toronto with a costume fitting to come in and replace, uh, to be Ellie in Showboat. Hmm. Now, at the point that you joined Showboat, who was in it? Was it still a lot of the originals? or No. By then, Hugh Panera was, was Ravenall, um, and Callie, Carol Shelley was Parthy. Uh, John McMartin, I believe, was yeah, the... John did it. ...was Captain Andy. And Joel Blum was, was my Frank... It was a great company. Sarah hmm. Fisterer was Magnolia. Hmm. But it, I imagine it wasn't – it was more of a conventional put-in than what you got to experience with, exactly. with uh, Mamma Mia. Exactly. So, so how fast did you myself. go into Showboat? Bam. Pretty fast. They gave me an extra couple of weeks because I was pregnant, because I was lactating. Um, <laughs> that was fun. And they, they were very, very sensitive to the fact that, you know – Anyway, you can imagine people that have given birth having a costume fitting literally four weeks afterwards. Um, so they took a lot of time with the dance just to make sure I would get back in shape and I felt strong. 
But it was just me at a put-in, and because I have a relationship with Stro, she was very supportive of what I brought to the role. But but it's specific, you know. That's the excellent storytelling showboat. It's not broke. You don't really have to to introduce anything new to that. Just just do your job. Hal and Stro did a fantastic job of that. Well, I was just going to ask you: uh, Was there a moment when you were doing the show that that Mr. Prince came stro- strolling down the aisle yeah. out of the blue? And just... yeah, we would know he was there. He's so gracious. He sent me a note opening night. So nice, so nice. You didn't see him very much, but he, he definitely made his presence there, and he definitely gave notes mm-hmm. and um, cared about the show and the quality of the show. Hmm. I got notes. Oh, sure. I respected him. <laughs> Anything you remember in particular? I remember one time um, I looked, and I shouldn't have looked, and I think it distracted, and he told me, please not to do that, and I never did that again ever in my life. Hmm. Even though you thought it was listening, it wasn't. It was it was a mistake. So I'm grateful for that lesson. Hmm. The next Broadway credit, as we skip along, skip um, along, is the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Now, not a long runner. No. But, but uh, if but, you count all the out-of-town stuff, it kind of went on for a well, while. How, I don't recall how it much It started at the Alley Theater right. in Houston, and right. we were there for three months. Wow. Yeah, there was a slight break, and then we went to New Haven hmm. at the Schubert. Okay. I don't remember how long. That's a month or two. Hmm. Slight break, and then we came to New York, rehearsed, previewed, and then it, I think it ran, including previews. I'm sure you know that answer right in front of you, don't you? I have Make it in me front proud. of me. Yes, 35 previews, 65 regular performances. Can't do the math of that week-wise, but that, you know. It was 100 performances okay, so <laughs> in New York. There you go. But all in all, it was about nine months, eight months of work counting out of town and stuff. But, yes, it did not. It didn't last very long. Hmm. In that big triptych, what did you get to play? Since not a lot of people had the opportunity to see it. Right. You had a couple of roles. It changed a lot. Um, yeah. I was cast specifically to play Mrs. Bixby, who was a real a woman who lost all five of her sons hmm. uh, in battle. I sang this really happy song about that. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. None of the creative team of Civil War had ever seen Showboat or Crazy for You or 42nd Street. They had no idea I was a hoofer or a comedian or a musical comedy girl because I had to go in and at my audition I sobbed my eyes out for this song. Sobbed my eyes out. Well, I was a mother. I could so, hmm. I could so personalize and relate to that song. Um, and then I played a hooker. Always fun. And, uh, nice transition uh, in the same show. Yeah. Hooker and then Act Two played the the mother, and there was that was a, there was various other little tidbits of storytelling in there, but those were the two big ones. Hmm. You know, you raised something interesting mm-hmm. because as as I'm looking through this this chronology of work, I do notice one play in here, and you just said they didn't know I was a hoofer. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. You do you said you know you went in, they thought you were. You know, serious and yes. because of, of the crying in that part, you did the play version of the jazz singer. I did. It wasn't the play. There was mu- it was there was music in it as well. Oh, oh yeah. okay. There you go. That's right. I did that. Yeah, it was a musical though. Oh, it was jazz singer. <laughs> so, have there been any plays? Not many. Um, in college and growing up, there was plays. I did same time next year. Um. Ball soprano. You know, I get my work now since I'm in New York. People see me mostly for musicals. Every once in a while, I get thrown a bone and uh, be able to do a reading of a play. Hmm. And to not have to get up and vocalize or to see if you have any voice left. It's like, wow, that's fantastic. You just talk the hmm. entire time. 
Do you want it? Would you want the opportunity to do more of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I pretty much, I can't think of anything I wouldn't want to do except playing ingenue and sing opera because I don't do them well. (laughs) Especially all at once then. Especially at the same time. Um, So then the Broadway revival of 42nd Street comes around. And here you are again with 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. You... Stood by mm-hmm. for Christine Ebersole mm-hmm. and Mary Testa, and Mary Testa, mm-hmm. and subsequently replaced Christine mm-hmm. Ebersole as, as Dorothy Brock. So, given that you said you had, you know, several years in the show in the first go round, the original production, and then presumably, I don't know how long Christine was in the show before before she left. You'd had a lot of time to watch yeah. Dorothy Brock. Right. What was I it saw them like? All. So what was it like to then be Dorothy Brock? Well, A, I never thought I could ever possibly play Dorothy Brock because in the original version, Dorothy Brock was cast uh, much older. Right. And in the revival, they went with, you know, Christine Ebersole, who's gorgeous. So it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm old enough to play Dorothy Brock. <laughs> what, uh, and at my audition for 42nd Street, when I walked in, the director, Mark Bramble, said, you just don't fit in any of the roles. You, you really don't fit Maggie. You really don't fit... Uh, Dorothy Brock, would you like to stand by? I was like, yes. It seems I, an odd message. You don't fit. Well, I so, don't really. I mean, yeah. with what he was thinking, I wasn't really quite what he visualized for Dorothy Brock. It wasn't really quite what he visualized for Maggie Jones. But, you know, I'm I'm skilled enough that I could certainly cover both of them. And I was completely unemployed and jumped at the opportunity hmm. to work, to get paid on Thursday. And watch them. I feel like uh, I have such a relationship with the show because I've done it for so long. And then when Christine left, they were kind enough to offer me the role. And at that point, did Mark Bramble come back and talk to you about your Dorothy Brock? Yeah, he seemed pleased, I hope. He said he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Christine and I were very different, but I loved her Dorothy Brock and... I liked what I did. It was fun being the grown-up. That was one of the first roles I had where I was cast as a leading lady, not the second banana funny girl with the heart of gold who sings the funny songs. Hmm. So that was fun. Hmm. Except in Jazz Singer. Jazz Singer, I was the leading lady, too. Now, I may be correcting you because you had said oh, you actually didn't go back. Away, correct away, correct away. Well, either, either this is wrong or I'm correcting you, but it looks like then you did a few shows at the Muni again in around 2004, 2005. I have a – that you did a 42nd Street out there. I did. I went and did Dorothy Brock at 42nd Street. So you did it out there and mm-hmm. also Vera Charles in Maine. Which was right before I was cast in Drowsy. So let's first talk about Vera Charles. Oh. Just getting a Isn't chance to delicious? play that. <laughs> she – I did Vera Charles. Who was your name? Uh, D. Hody. Okay. And then right after that, I think it was right after, I may have this backwards, I did Charlotte in Little Night Music at Pittsburgh CLO. And the combination of those two women uh, so informed my drowsy chaperone, the Beatrice Stockwell, who that character became. Because hmm. no one really knew who she was, including me. And we were all ready to discover that. And having that information lodged in me, a little Vera and a little Charlotte. Hmm spewed out gave birth to Beatrice Stockwell. Well, let's let's talk about you getting Drowsy Chaperone. Now, Drowsy Chaperone journey. had begun as a birthday present for Bob Martin by yeah, his friends like up wedding, in Toronto. Uh, it was a bachelor party? Oh, that's right. That's that. okay. It was a bachelor party. I have to remind myself. And 
Wow, some party, huh? Yeah. They completely wrote this one-act musical for Bob and Janet Vandegraaff, cast themselves in it, costumed it. It was And it was such a hit that people were saying to them, you kind of have something here. Why don't you... Why don't you seriously try to make this into a legitimate musical? Hmm. And look what happened. Well, it grew in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, and but you came into it in New York, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Or I, out I, of town at the uh, at the Amundsen. And it went, I, I, but the, all the auditions, all the process were, were in New York, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it took a while. Even Kevin McCullum has said this that the script came across his desk, and it was titled "The Drowsy Chaperone." That's a little problematic. I, I think that title. People like the the what the the droopy Chardonnay what. So it was. I think it was hard to get people really interested in what the drowsy chaperone was enough to open up the script and read it. And he finally did, thankfully. And then the audition process started. Um, we went to the Amundsen and then hoped for a opening. In the winter of 2000, what was it? When did it? 2005, 6? 2006. Thank you. Um, and my first audition for Drowsy Chaperone, mm, I sang um, 100 Easy Ways to Lose a Man. Hmm. The script changed so much that what was on the page was so unclear as to who this woman was, what well, her job was. You and was, I have talked about her. this before, yeah. Just kind of clueless, and I think uh, I think Casey would even Casey and Bob and all the creatives would s- say as well. I think they were waiting for someone to go. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, that's what this role is. And it wasn't me the first time around. Casey was kind enough to call me, and I picked up the phone. And before he even said anything, I went, "I don't, th- I don't think, I don't think I'm your girl. I don't think this is a match. I don't think I'm the one that you need to bring a life and a voice to this woman. I don't think I'm it." He went, "I don't really think so either." And I was like, "Okay, I understand." Well, I'm, thanks I'm, for calling. Thanks for calling. Have a good day. <laughs> Hope you get work. And I said, "Maybe I'm thinking she needs to be maybe more mature, older than than I am. Bring kind of that energy to it." That that. He said, yeah, maybe. And I think they went on to audition every woman on both coasts of the United States. And for some reason, at the very last minute, I get a call. To me, it's the last minute. And from my agent, and he says, "Um, I have a job offer for you. I'm like, what? I love those. When you feel like, oh, a job offer, I don't have to audition. Yes. He says, for the drowsy chaperone. I went, oh no 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 no! I said, that didn't that didn't work out. I w- I wish that had worked out, but I, I I'm not going to get that role. He went, well wait, let me let me double check and call you back. So he gets off and he calls and he calls me back and went, yeah, that they you've been offered the drowsy chaperone and you leave in two and a half weeks to go to Los Angeles for three months, pack your bags, bye bye. <laughs> and there you and we're off. Now you've already said playing. The Countess and Vera Charles very much informed the yes. character. Is there much ultimately on the page, or is it really when anyone's going to play that role, they've got to figure out what their take is on her? I think her. they have to figure out what their take is on her. I mean, um, there, there, there was a wonderful souvenir program for the show that had oh, all kinds of wasn't that extra great? history and stories oh, of other brilliant. shows written by the composers and, <laughs> yeah, and all of pictures that. Pictures of Beatrice Old at the Red Apple hiding behind her sunglasses. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> Just 
FYI. But, but people probably shouldn't do, use that in preparing the role. No, I think that's what makes the role so fascinating and fantastic and successful. If you can find whatever uniqueness in your instrument you can bring to bring that character off the page and to drive that show that way and have the relationship with the man in chair even though you never talk to him. Well, that's, what a challenge. I mean, that is interesting because you have this this leading man sitting over on the corner of the stage commenting on all that's going on, but he is so we ignore. wholly separate. I know. From His you. scene partner is the audience. I mean, it's nice since he was the author, he could just turn and watch what was going on and maybe jot some notes. And he but did, too. Like, did oh, really? yeah. Oh, that line doesn't work. Yeah, we would. Yeah, he would constantly. He said it was distracting, actually. Some days he'd be like, oh, I have to rewrite that joke. That totally looks <laughs> flat tonight. <laughs> Hmm. Did did he act, did that keep going on, or once the show was set, oh, no. the show was set? No, that's a Bob. God bless him. I love that he does that. Will never be satisfied unless he feels like the joke is really successful in landing. We hmm. had this one moment in Los Angeles where I come down on a bit on a bed, and and we kept trying to find a line about a drink. We went through Bloody Marys, Gimlets, and I can't remember what it came up with. Uh, um, um, what are the drink mint mojitos? <laughs> of course, I had to do research. Probably not. A, I don't know. Did we had were mojitos around Probably in the era mojito, of yeah, the Blasi Chaperone? Well, you did in L.A. when we when we did that was cut. It, it, I can't remember what it. Oh, this is sad. I wish I remember what it finally ended up being. But every night I would have a different uh, joke and a punchline about some alcoholic beverage. And you started to tell me a story, which oh, I said yeah. keep for when we, we start <laughs> recording, about your relationship to the various alcoholic beverages yes, named yes, in the yes. show. Um, I'm not a big uh, frou-fruit drinker. I have I like wine, and that's about it. So there were all these references to all these drinks that I had no earthly idea. And some of the lines I were given was actually the ingredients to certain drinks. So I figured I needed to do some research. Mm-hmm. So there's some in New York uh, and there's some in New Jersey, the diners that have the placemats on the table <laughs> that each square gives you a different gimlet, a Manhattan, things, and the ingredients and how to make them. So I, I took a couple of those. And they were my textbooks. So when someone would ask me, oh, really? Well, what's in a Gibson or a Gimlet? I could actually tell you that it's the differences in olive and an onion. So you were not only won the Tony, but you and got a degree as an amateur mixologist. An actor prepares. And I could, I could, I could wait tables and be a, your bartender in a heartbeat now. With a show like Chaperone, you know, and with Crazy for You, these are shows that clearly live on. When you create a role, have you had the opportunity to go back and see other people do your role, or do you ever want to go oh, back and I'd see it? I would love to. I would love to. I would love to see Drowsy, but it's so new. Mm-hmm. And I know they did it. It was released, and they did it all sorts of places all summer. And I wish I'd had the opportunity to go see it, because I know some of the women that were playing that part and I actually w- was having a conversation with Christine Tisdale, who was playing it in, in uh, St. Louis. She would come to me with the script and go, what does that mean? <laughs> Wait, w- w- what does that mean? Did you actually? It's like, no, no, it's kind of a dream. She was like, oh, my gosh. And we had, it was fascinating to revisit it like that again. I wish I'd been able to go to London. And, you know, they're getting ready to do it in Australia hmm. with uh, 
Jeffrey Rush playing man in chair. Oh, right. I want to go so bad, but I'm working, so I can't. Um, I haven't seen, I've never seen Crazy for You, and I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen Drowsy. Hmm. Now, after, after Drowsy, mm-hmm. you did, you went into Young Frankenstein oh, right. as Frau Blucher. I'm so glad that you have this in front of you. Well, it, it, know, it, it helps right? us through. It does help us to have a flow chart. <laughs> so did you did you get any time with Mr. Brooks? No, I didn't. I uh, auditioned for him. My first audition, uh, the audition came up really quickly for some reason right after we got back from, I don't remember where I was. But I, I came back in town and it was like, do you want to audition for Young Frank? I was yes, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. As I didn't have enough time to prepare my audition. So I went in the first my first audition and it was those actor stories you hear you walk into a room and literally there must have been 30 people at the table including Mel Brooks Susan Stroman a lot of the creative people and I just was awful I really was I just didn't know the song well enough I just and at that point you're going in and you're doing that song he wanted me to sing he was was my boyfriend and I uh, it was to the point I had such a little time to prepare which is probably my fault, that I was just listening to the CD over and over and over and over and over again, trying to just steal everything I could from Andrea Martin and trying to learn the tune. And God bless Mel Brooks. He went, I don't think you know the song well enough. He said, you're so talented and funny, because thank God he had seen Drowsy Chaperone, that he, he said, why don't we give you a little more time to prepare? And then I had a work session with the uh, conductor, Patrick Brady, worked the song, came back so prepared for my <laughs> second audition. I was so prepared for that. I came in costume, which I don't always do, sort of costume. And, and, uh, and I was going to say, if you had you the imagine? appropriate clothing at home for that role. I certainly did. Oh, look, Frau Brucher <laughs> clothes and a mole. So, um, and I, I booked the gig. So there's a lesson there. Do your homework. So as, as our time starts to dwindle, I want to ask you about two musicals that you've done on the West Coast yes. in what um, were certainly perceived and may still yet be pre-Broadway engagements. Absolutely. First, One uh, never knows. Dancing in the Dark, yes, also yes, known yes. as uh, The Bandwagon. Right. It's changed now to The Bandwagon. So Last um, what was what was the bandwagon Dancing in the Dark like in its, in its first incarnation? Um, it's always such a challenge to do an original musical. And then to take it from a musical, an MGM musical, that had such great songs, but I, I don't think the storytelling was so fantastic in the movie, so they were trying to um, figure out a way to marry those two and come up with this great show. And I, I think they were successful on so many ways, but it was a lot of the stuff was problematic. We needed to go and revisit some of how the music was connected in the story and the arc of the show and it's how it started. It's so complicated. How faithful was it? Was it was it really trying to follow the movie? Or no, it was not really. Doug Carter Bean did the book. It was Douglas Carter Bean who and had this wonderful dark take on it, which was fast fascinating to do. But the, the songs were the same, mm-hmm. so I, I think it was successful. But I, it's kind of on hold now. I don't know what's happening with it. We did another reading of it. They they rewrote some of the script, changed the beginning, changed where the song placements were, um, and then they changed it to the bandwagon, I think, to just have more recognition, connection to the movie. So I'm just kind of waiting to hear what happens with that. Mm. One never knows. And then um, just uh, not so long ago so long at the ago. Amundsen, Minsky's, Minsky's, which is a project that has been – around with various creative mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. involved in it mm-hmm. for years, years and 
based on a movie that not that many people remember, The Night right. That Raided Minsky's, and right. from what I gather, has gone pretty far away from what it's that movie different. was. I just saw part of the movie, and it's, it's, it's very different. And it keeps changing. We just did a, a reading of it not too long ago. It had changed again. And um, I'm anxious to see what kind of life that will have. You just never know in this business from one mm-hmm. minute to the next. Just Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little about Minsky's? The, I mean, it's Bob did Bob the Bob Martin did the book. Casey so. Nicola directed it. Uh, Susan Bergenhead, Charles Strauss. Right. Uh, music and lyrics. Some fantastic music. Uh, based on Billy Minsky, the burlesque. Mm-hmm. Uh, a story of his life and when burlesque was closing in this um, infamous night that a woman actually exposed her breasts and they raided Minsky's and they closed it down. And burlesque was shut down, but then this successful show then moved to Broadway. It's a great musical comedy about burlesque and it's a love story with lots of uh, uh, banana peels and one-liners and burlesque dancers and Bob Martin and Casey Nicola and Charles Strauss and Susan Birkenhead music. And where did you fit into the story? I'm Maisie, uh, the choreographer, Billy Minsky's right-hand gal, heart of gold, funny, and I have the best song in Act Two <laughs> called Home, which is a song about how we as actors feel about the theater, that the the ingenue was going, it's just a job, it's just a job, it's just a place, you're really just being silly, and I go, oh no, um, the ground you're standing on is special. This is all our home. And I sing this wonderful song called Home. Hmm. I hope I get to do that sometime. Hmm. And then also 2009, earlier, mm-hmm. before you went into Mamma Mia, saw you back at the Muni. Oh, yeah. Playing Miss Hannigan I again. Did. Well, I think you, you've gotten Miss Hannigan a couple of times. Three times. Over the years. Three I times. love her. Yeah? I have the best time playing Miss Hannigan. And Charles Strauss. Is it being mean to children? What's yes, the part? What do you enjoy? It's all of the above, being mean to children. I've got those great songs. It's one of the funniest roles ever written. And it's also one of those roles that not necessarily everything is on the page. Mm -hmm. And some of the comedy is just right up my alley. And Charles Strauss was kind enough to come and fly to St. Louis and come see me do, not just me, but see me do Miss Hannigan. And he said he had a great time. He said, I couldn't possibly see you playing Miss Hannigan until after I did it. Hmm. So I I have so much fun with that role. And I'm just so unattractive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just so unattractive and screaming at children. And at the Muni, because it's the Muni, it's 12,000 seats, there were at two or three moments in the show, there's eight principal orphans, but in the big numbers, there were 70. Oh, because they got to fill a big stage yeah. out there. Yeah, so that was awesome. So suddenly you saw the whole orphanage. <laughs> it's like herds of <laughs> singing. <laughs> Thank goodness I had a whistle. And um, you also... Went to Pittsburgh CLO right. and played the, the witch in Into the Woods. I did. What was uh, playing the witch like? Um, well, I must tell you, be perfectly honest with you, that whole experience was informed by my father died the first day of rehearsal. Mm. So, my witch, that show represents something so special and profound to me. And to be able to channel some of my grief. And to celebrate my father by singing these love songs about children hmm. was kind of a gift. That said, you have 10 days to learn <laughs> to learn one of the most complicated musicals ever written. Hmm. Uh, and I remember it's a lot of work to do Sondheim in that short amount of time. 
and I hope to be able to do it again when I can really, really live with her longer so I can get to know so many levels of the witch. But it was... Do you do that a lot? No, I never do it. But you had such a great line, I'm going to steal it. We were checking Beth's levels, get it? That guy, 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 and I'm stealing that. You mentioned that immediately prior to coming to do this interview, you were doing a workshop of a musical of Elf, mm-hmm. the Will Ferrell movie. Yes. Um, who's involved in, in putting that together? Oh, it's Casey Nicolon, Bob Martin, oh. and Tom Meehan. And the music is written by Matt Sklar and Chad, who did A Wedding Singer. Right. And I just went blank on Chad's name. I Chad am Begelin. so sorry. Thank yep. you. I um, may have mispronounced slightly, but that's, close enough. At least you said it. Um, it's the, uh, a musical based on Elf, that movie, which could there be a more perfect movie to lend itself to being musicalized? Hmm. And it's this fantastic, beautiful Christmas story, love story. Hmm. Are you always out there looking to do workshops? I mean, clearly now you've got a solid gig. Right. You know where you're going to be right. on this lovely Greek island right. for, for the foreseeable future. In a fake tan. Yeah. Do, you, yep. do you still always look for what's next? Yeah. Do you still always try to put yourself into I do. Those I think it makes me a better person. I think it makes me a better actor if I always have my juices mixing up. I think, it's, I think it makes me better in Mamma Mia because hmm. I'm always alive, always just listening. And there are moments when I, I, I'm looking forward to Elf stopping so I can just take a little bit of a breather. Yeah, because you haven't been in Mamma Mia that long. Only like three months. So, yeah, that'll be nice just to do eight shows a week. But it's interesting that you say doing the workshops, you know, one of the the standard questions in Mm. interviews, which I always try to avoid, is (laughs) when you do a show for so long, how do you keep Keep it it fresh? fresh? So for you, it's as much about what are you doing outside of Mamma Mia that it is what you do on the stage? Sometimes, sometimes. Usually, I like to... I'm of the school that it's fresh because eight shows a week, there's a different audience out there every night. And particularly with Mamma Mia, eight shows a week, you get eight completely different audience reactions. And that keeps that so in the moment and fresh for me because you just never know if they're going to clap when I start singing Mamma Mia, whether they're going to come running down the aisles and want to be a rock star with you on stage, hmm. that really... Y- y- so there's suspense for well, you every that. night. Like, are you coming on stage with me? Um, that's that's a lot of fun. That's hmm. a lot of fun. That keeps it very fresh. And I've only done it for three months. Lord, have mercy. I've been in shows for four years. Hmm. I got three more years to go. There you go. So now and for the foreseeable future, Beth Level as Donna Sheridan in Mamma Mia and uh, several other musicals circling that may land with you as well. Life is never dull. Not at all. Beth, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheatreWing.org. You can follow the Wing on Twitter at 
the wing and follow me as well on twitter as he sherman you can declare yourself as one of our fans on facebook at the american theater wing if you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work just visit our website and click on support atw for downstage center and the american theater wing i'm howard sherman thanks for listening and no matter where you live i hope we'll see you at the theater